Hello and welcome to a Black Movie Podcast, where we celebrate Black culture through a cinema by reviewing and discussing Black-led films from a range of different genres and time periods. I am your co-host, Ryan. I am Andre. I'm Lauren. And I'm known as Two Times James. That's not a good nickname, dude. <laughs> two Times James. And I and I think that, like, not even Two James, like the gin. Yeah. So your name is James James, is that it? Yep. James and James. One of the, is, is it like a Tony, Tony, Tony situation where like they're... Mm. I, I do personally know lots of Jameses with different spelled names, so I'm going to take that. That's it. <laughs> how, do you, how else do you spell James? You would be surprised. We're getting away from the movie. Yeah. We, we, we are, you know, easing our way on down the road to the whiz. Um, the 1978... I'm um, impressed that you made, to made that work. Look, I'm, I, I, I do my best. The Wiz is a 1978 musical black remix of the Wizard of Oz, often seen in the what 1940, 48 Julie Garland uh, version in theaters, and also the original novels about Oz by L. Frank Baum. This was a movie that came out with a lot of fanfare and a significant, significantly gigantic budget. This was like a $24 million movie in 1978 bucks and was a massive commercial flop but it is a really fascinating bit of black culture and it stars a who's who of black entertainment in the 70s and 80s a lot of the soundtrack was done by quincy jones dorothy is played by diana ross and we'll get to the weirdness around that probably pretty quick uh michael jackson plays the scarecrow in a surprisingly touching rendition nipsey russell is the tin man Ted Ross reprises his role from the original Broadway production of this as the Cowardly Lion. And you have all sorts of performances and cameos from people like Richard Pryor as The Wiz and the late Lena Horne um, as Glinda the Good Witch in her last theatrical performance. So with that said, I'm curious what you all think as far as your initial impressions. I'm going to throw it to Andre, our resident musical disliker. What did you think of this movie? Uh, like this was any old musical when it comes to like my like or dislike. I I just didn't like it, but I did like a few things about it. Uh, costume set design were all great. Love the cinematography. Love the way it made uh, black bodies look just beautiful with the way that it was shot. And you know, it was also like some of the choreography and acting were also really really good. Yeah, there was um this movie did get Oscar nominations and I think one win for cinematography, for costume set design, for best original music, um, and a few other things. Even though critics panned it, they were also still nobody had a bad thing to say about Michael Jackson's performance in this. People thought he brought a lot of warmth and heart to it, even at the time. Yeah, James, what did you think of The Wiz? You know, one, I didn't know it was released in theaters. Like, I always thought this was like a direct-to-TV sort of deal. Um, I don't really know why, but, well... It was originally... Maybe. It was intended to be. This was supposed to be a NBC TV special. Um, uh, but okay. it, it grew out of scope big enough to... I think it went... I think it was supposed to be a TV series. And then, then it went to Broadway, which is a weird directional relationship for a a, a property. Also, another weird fact... This screenplay is written by Joel Schumacher. Batman Forever, Joel Schumacher. That makes a lot of sense. It does. It (laughs) makes sense. It's also insane. That is an insane fact. (laughs) It Uh, is absolutely insane. It makes me unhappy, but it makes sense. uh, So my thoughts, like, I liked The Wiz as a kid. I remember watching it, probably on TV or something. Um, I remember liking the songs. I remember liking Michael Jackson in the movie. As an adult... I like it a lot less. I think there's still like parts of it that are really cool. The acting is good. Some of the songs are just like insane how good they are. E- Ease on down the road being, I think, the the standout. Um, but even some of the others are cool. But the movie is too slow, in in like not in a way that you might normally think. It just drags. Like everything feels like it's too long. Opening is way too slow. I think Diana Ross is like underutilized. I don't know. It's just there's some interesting things with this movie. I think it looks cool. It is 
incredibly wacky, just like tripped out beyond belief. But I just didn't really enjoy it that much. And I'm I'm actually like kind of sad about it, to be honest. Like I went into this hoping I would like it a lot more than I did. No, I totally feel that. Lauren, uh, what did you think? Yeah, so like James, I saw this movie when I was a kid. I don't remember anything about it, which I do think is a sign because I liked and watched a bunch of very odd movies as a kid. And I remember most of them and I rewatched many of them long into adulthood. This is not one of those films. So even childhood me was like, yeah, something off here. And I think it's similar to what James was saying. Like, it's just a weird, it's not even a movie. This is a mushroom induced fever dream that somehow got put into theaters, black theaters mostly because white theaters wouldn't really play it and put on TV for some reason. And while I like, I love the Wizard of Oz. I love Michael Jackson. Uh, I love Diana Ross. Like I love uh, musicals. I love a lot of the pieces of this particular uh, enterprise. I don't love the whole. I do wonder what this movie could have been like if it had been written and directed by Mel Brooks instead of Joel Schumacher and Sidney Lumet. Like I'm, I'm just dying to know what the alternative version of this could have looked like if it had been handled by someone that had more talent in this kind of genre. Absolutely. I mean. For me, I I grew up with this. This was like our school musical, growing up. Like the as in like this is a musical that you know every other every other year a class performs, in my middle school, which meant that you know, a lot of those songs were just burned into my brain even if I didn't perform. And I know that, you know, so much of my experience of the Wiz is me watching this on a small screen in the kitchen while like family is cooking. It's very much one of those memories that's tied to a sense of place and time. Watching it as an adult, um, some things just seem really hard to justify. In the books, like the original books about the Wizard of Oz, like Dorothy's supposed to be like 10 or 11. Judy Garland was supposed to be playing like a 16-year-old Dorothy or something like that in the old one. Diana Ross is 33 in this movie. She is 33 playing a Dorothy that has somehow been aged up to be a 24-year-old school teacher in Harlem. And it feels like all of that exists in like that whole first part of the movie that we're talking about drags is literally just them just going, we're sorry, we had no choice but to cast Diana Ross in this. They had a choice. Stephanie Mills, who's an incredible singer, premiered as Dorothy on Broadway at 16 or 17 and would have been a fantastic Dorothy. But I think that it was a package deal where Diana really wanted this role and said, I can make sure that Michael Jackson plays Scarecrow if so. And they said, we'll take and figure out how to deal with that. Yeah, the whole opening part of this movie, the whole framing device is setting her up to be a shy and lonely, you know, school teacher whose family wants to get married and all sorts of stuff that just doesn't matter. You know, some of the songs I actually gained more reverence for watching again you know i watched this movie maybe every like 10 years or so that is too many times well i you know the uh, nbc i think did a live um a live remake of the Wiz for tv mm-hmm. a few years ago um with uh, queen latifah and a number of other folks and so i watched this version of the Wiz, the original og Wiz, um the original Wiz. um on was that remake good uh <laughs> I that's what I needed to know. Apparently that's the only sound I can make. Was the original good? Yeah, there's entertainment to be had in there, um but it is not the same. But yeah, like there, you know, some of the songs and set pieces in this are absolutely incredible. And some of the cast work, I think actually, you know, the actors do, you know, a really great job. Since this is a musical and since the music of this is I think what the enduring legacy of this film is. I'm curious of what songs you all thought were um, actually good and worthwhile. There's plenty of them that went on way longer than I ever wanted to hear, but I was surprised at like how much I liked. Um, I remember liking No Bad News. I didn't remember it being that fun, um, but it was a lot of fun for me. I'm not going to lie. I kind of hit a point with some of those songs. I just kind of like, okay, I'll listen to this for like a minute or two and then just kind of skip forward. Um, Out for me, outside of the Scarecrow song with Michael Jackson, I just kind of was just like, 
All right, we can kind of get through this and move on here. We don't really need to dwell right here. Yeah, the Scarecrow song, You Can't Win, is still what I sing in my head whenever something unfair happens to me in life. Like, that is the <laughs> go-to in my brain for You Just Got Screwed, um, is to um, mentally have Michael crooning, You Can't Win, You Can't Break Even, and You Can't Break Out of the Game. See, I have a deep military voice that says good every single time <laughs> I... That that sort of thing happens to me. <laughs> All the Scarecrow songs, I think, are great. Um, I like the Tin Man song and the um, Cowardly Lion song. No Bad News is great. I liked Brand New Day until it went five minutes too long. And then I was like, okay, we can be done with this. And then there was a costume change. And then I was like, oh, no, we really can be done with this. It was more of a costume removal than a costume change. <laughs> yeah. Boy, we'll get to there. And uh, I also liked the sequence when they get into Emerald City, two thirds of it. Like the green and the gold. Well, actually, I want to save that because so, I want to hear your thoughts all about that. But yeah, those are the ones that, that really stood out to me. I only actually really liked Ease On Down the Road as like a song that like stayed with me because it's just so catchy. Uh, the rest I'm actually kind of with Andre like the music sounds good it goes on too long I don't really need the musical scenes I guess is actually how I'd phrase it the music is fine I don't need the musical scenes uh, in this movie at all which is kind of a shame because again I love musicals and I typically love the performances in them in this case like the like Michael's performances are amazing because he's Michael Jackson and when he's like learning to walk after he gets down off of his pole for the first time like that is some serious like Chaplin vibes right there like his his physical comedy is amazing but it's not aside from that one song I think most of the songs you could actually cut out of the movie and it would actually one shorten the movie considerably and make it tolerable and you wouldn't actually miss a lot for me most of the charm of the movie is actually the cinematography and the sets in particular, are actually really interesting uh, and kind of advanced. The rest is not as good as it could be given the producers. I would say that uh, it's more, it's more, it's less that the song shouldn't be there, and it's more that the song goes on for so long that's like, man, if they would have cut this in half, like that would have been, like this would have been so much better. Yeah, like I found myself thinking uh, through that for a lot of the a lot of the scenes because I did enjoy like looking some of the you know looking and watching some of the dance choreography and the way that they uh, stage and blocked all of the musical numbers. I do wonder because I haven't seen the theater version of this. I don't know if anyone else has gone to the theater to see this production. I do wonder if it's actually much better in that format than in the movie format. For some reason, it just didn't feel like it translated. The energy doesn't translate as well to the movie screen as it might have actually been exhibited on stage. Yeah, I bet. I haven't seen it in the theater, but I bet it would be really good there. Uh, or I, I suspect it could be much better there. One thing I'll mention about the songs that I think is interesting about musicals, because I don't watch a lot of musicals, but in a lot of them that I've seen, the songs sort of tell either a story or tell you more about the characters or more about like what's happening. There's a couple songs in this that sort of do that, but there's a lot of songs that are just songs to be songs. They don't tell you anything more. They don't like progress anything more about the world. It's just like this moment is going to be surrounded by a choreographed song now, um, which I think is what makes some of them feel weird. And the fact that they're like, they took the album, the Wiz album, and were like, we need to play the whole album in this movie. So every song is full sized, which was also just like no bueno in musicals. It's actually an interesting thing. And in most, so most early musicals, at least, were actually written around the songs, right? So it's not the songs support the story. The story was written to match the song. They picked a bunch of songs they liked, and then they essentially created plot to string them together that's how like early musicals were originally created this kind of feels like that to your point because the songs are just songs they really wanted to sing and then they kind of drafted some plot points to you know go between them and they didn't do it really well in all the cases so in some cases it doesn't like connect to the story i, I think that the desire to have like the gigantic set pieces was a good one in terms of like the cinematography and visual impact 
but really bad when you needed to match all of that to an eight minute, nine minute song. <laughs> like if, if, if it was a case where like the song kept going and the plot progressed through, you know, like as like characters are moving through space, but just like, no, we're sitting here at the world's most awkward parking garage, watching these characters tell you the same, like a- answer a one word, a one sentence question of who is the whiz for 10 minutes, 10 minutes of this. And, and like I'm partial to that song for like whatever it's worth, but like there's nothing that can make me hate something faster than having it go on that long and not be anything particularly new. Also, another fun trivia fact about the music in this: the brand new day song from near the end of the movie after they handle the the second Wicked Witch, that is written by Luther Vandross. And if you listen to it again in the future, I think in cut out the whole eight minute dance break revival at the end you will definitely hear some vintage luther melodies in there and it's made that more enjoyable for me but yeah like i think that the songs in this are definitely worth they're one of the reasons why i think it's worth you know this still being a thing to watch is because they are you know a bunch of them are if nothing else they're interesting and we've seen some other musicals in the pod uh watching like that we watched that the the songs didn't have any kind of staying power in memory. And even the ones that I'm like, eh, this is, you know, I'm not going to listen to this on purpose, but also I remember what they all are. And that's like better than I can say for a number of different musicals that we've watched. So uh, uh, on Brand New Day, because you mentioned it was written by Luther Vandross. So while you were talking, I looked that up. And I wondered why this song sounded so familiar. He recorded his own version of it for one of his albums. And I'm pretty sure I've heard it before. It's called Everybody Rejoice, his version of the song. Because, like, my parents were about that Luther Vandross. And uh, I'm pretty sure his version, a lot better, if I remember remember correctly. I'm going to go back and listen to it once we're done, but I'm pretty sure uh, he killed it. My parents are also about the Luther. I'm also about the Luther, to be honest. Yeah, is anyone not about the Luther? Because you should raise your hand and get out. Real talk, earlier today, I was listening to uh, House Is Not A Home while driving down the road and almost shed a tear i like oh mm-hmm. yeah oh, so uh, good luther vandross so um good. you know american treasure deserved way more flowers than he got even though you know black folks gave him as much as they could also a bunch of that stuff you know listening to the sounds now still still hits totally holds up uh, one of the things that i i think was that i i did want to ask about and talk about a bit is that we mentioned that there's a NBC remake of a live musical performance of The Wiz as like a homage remake of this movie version featuring Queen Latifah and a bunch of other people I don't remember. And it it was a it was hyped up as a very big television event. It's one of the last big live television events I remember getting traction in media and people trying to get me to watch something when it happened. And I thought a lot about the the things in this movie that struck me as interesting on this rewatch and a lot of them are really around how black folks remix stuff and how we adapt and change elements of a story to fit our worlds better there's a number of things in the whiz that like i actually didn't enjoy or appreciate when i was younger the jai talking crows is like the weird example of that um there's other ones of like they renamed some of the Wicked Witches. Like the Wicked Witches have names, uh, Evermean and Eveline, uh, Eveline, um, which is, you know, it's hard for me to explain why it's black, but it's black. Just trust me. <laughs> they're, they're, like the, He's not wrong, the flying y'all. monkeys showing up on motorcycles as a motorcycle gang, flying monkeys AC on their jackets. Hilarious, brilliant, you know, juxtaposition of the weird urbanity of like, 1970s like even though this was taking place in oz this was clearly in oz in 1978 with a bunch of black people in it and so therefore in like new york right because even the even the munchkin people are actually graffiti people and the scene where they come out of the graffiti to meet dorothy is one of the most amazing and unsettling and just brilliant pieces absolutely of scenery everywhere it's Mm -hmm. incredible yeah I wish I liked that song better, but yeah, that scene looked cool. Someone needs to remix that scene by itself with some better music, because that is, like, out there. And there's countless moments like that, where I look at, you know, what they're 
trying to do. And it was like, oh, this is really subversive in a whole lot of interesting ways. Nipsey Russell's, you know, uh, singing about his oil can song as a Tin Man, about like how, you know, you need to slide that some of that oil down here and lubricate my mind. And it was just like, is a Tin Man getting drunk? <laughs> that sounds like the Tin Man is like, that's is there Hennessy in that oil? Um, was like my initial reaction to that song. And and like, there's all sorts of things like that. I was curious if if y'all picked up on other 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 elements of that of like you know hey like we we've taken this element of the original story and just made it real damn black i just think about the tin man's whole uh because you mentioned uh that whole oil scene his whole like monologue as they're like trying to like straighten him out so that he can stand up his whole monologue about like being uh you know flawed was he made with flaws and being attracted to the wrong women and all of that stuff was hilarious to me. Strangely enough, the stuff that felt more like the original story is the stuff that stuck out to me more. So like Dorothy felt really out of place when like the rest of the movie clearly was like adapted for the time, as you mentioned, adapted for the audience. But I felt like they tried to keep Dorothy like her. I don't know how to say it like her naivete intact from the original movie and like that didn't work and so it felt really weird in comparison to everything else that felt like very much we've adapted this story for black people in the 70s because diana ross is 33 yeah i think that was a huge part of it but i do agree she was very much like herself although i will say michael's scarecrow was very similar to the original scarecrow to you in a way that felt like very familiar, but still ke- he kept it in line with the general vibe of the movie. And I don't think that Dinah Ross's Dorothy did that. Also, I well. think Michael's nose is a Reese's cup wrapper. It's painted on actually. I believe it looks like a Reese's cup wrapper. That's even better. Uh, it's amazing oh. just because it's just, it's, you can't not look at it. It's, mm-hmm. it's incredible. Uh, I do want to click like double click on what you mentioned about the crows though. Cause that was actually one of the things that stuck out. Like, I loved the crows. There's no reason I should have loved the crows. Like we've all seen versions of the jive talking crows in other media, right? Like the most famous version being Dumbo and the jive talking crows, which are clearly racist tropes. And it's one of the many reasons no one should ever watch the original animated Dumbo. But for some reason in this movie, the jive talking crows really work. They not only have more personality than the crows in the, you know, the regular crows in the original Wizard of Oz movie, but in this case, they just, I had the complete opposite reaction I have to the Dumbo Jive Talking Crows, where I'm like, no, yeah, that's legit. That's hilarious. There's something about them that's charismatic. Like, it felt authentic. Like, it was, you know, Black people representing, in some ways, stereotypes of Black people, but it felt more okay that way. And it was fascinating to actually have that kind of reaction to them. Could have easily gone the other way. That's really interesting to point out, because I I also like the Crows. I think they're cool. Um, I hadn't really thought about them in the context of like the Dumbo Crows, but I think what it probably is, is you can tell the intent behind the character, even if the characters are the same. So like you can tell that in Dumbo, clearly there was like a level of um, maleficent intent with the creation of those crows. While in this case, it doesn't feel that way. Like it feels like they're sort of trying to harken back and honor those type of people that did exist. I don't know. It's just, it's interesting to bring that up. I wouldn't have really made that. I mean, I, like the crows weren't the joke. The crows were just, you know, the crows were just the crows. And they themselves were hilarious and interesting. And like them being that way or talking that way wasn't incongruous because it wasn't meant to be. Yeah, I think you're right. I think that, you know, that, that kind of intent does actually show up in this. It, it really was a tightrope, I think, to walk. I think it could have gone real bad had it not. And also, like, there's, you know, this ensemble cast was just like, like all, all the choruses and ensembles were huge and they kept showing up later in the movie. So you just see crows randomly hanging out with the flying monkeys later on, or like they're muscling their way into a dancing at the sweatshop and just like that. And like, I just enjoyed the dorky continuity of like, well, where else are they going to go? They've already picked a side kind of. So, you know. In terms of other, like, very black things, and this isn't really just a black thing, but at the beginning of the movie, when they're in Dorothy's family's house having holiday dinner, 
Jenny and Wallace go, yeah, no, I've been in that dining room. Oh, yeah. Or rather, I've walked through the dining room on the way to, to the kids' table. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, but everything <laughs> about that, the glasses on the table, like the drinking glasses, the everyone crammed around the table so you can fit as many people as humanly possible into this one tiny room. Everything about the family dynamics. So I was like, yeah, <laughs> that looks right. Even the part before... Like just you know, you know, ladies in the kitchen, and then guys all crowded around the television while the kids are playing whatever. Guys just sitting there talking about the football game that's on. Felt real familiar. Mm-hmm. You know, it's funny if you look back at you know some of the other movies that we've watched this season, and I think back to Soul Food, which was like basically that scene, but a whole movie. Mm-hmm. It, this scene felt more real than Soul Food's version of that scene. Agreed. Which is kind of insane, considering that they built, like, a whole movie around that concept. Uh, but this, like, I don't know, a couple minutes, like, I, you could connect to that in a way you couldn't before. Too bad that song wasn't good, but... Agreed. But this, I think part of this is because that that scene captured the kind of, like, chaos of those kinds of family gatherings in a way that Soul Food never did. Because Sofu didn't really have like the full extended family experience. It was just too clean. Like all of the scenes and the structure of everything was just too clean. Because they were obviously creating a, a crafting a narrative. Where in this case, it was just like internal family holiday chaos. And it felt so authentic, like so authentically chaotic that you're like, yeah, I've been at that table. I totally agree. I think that there's so much that's it's part of the reason why I was upset at at like all the scaffolding being built really just to deal with the fact that Diana Ross was 33. And I, I keep saying it because it's just like, I'm imagining trying to imagine myself at 33 years old, walking up to someone and going, no, no, no. The age, like Dorothy is timeless. It doesn't matter how old the actress it is that plays her and being like, no, it, I think it does. It does. And I get Diana wanting to like live the dream of playing Dorothy yeah. Gale and like being the Wizard of Oz, but she should have been Glinda the Good Witch. Like that was the part that she should have played in this film. Yeah, that would have been good. Or or they should have just rewritten the movie to make it make sense. Like you could do that. You didn't she didn't have to play it like she was a twenty five year old who was trying to be a sixteen year old who was really a nine year old. They could have just rewritten it to be about a woman in her 30s who is struggling with like some sort of like life choice which you know we've all done maybe not andre because he's a small baby um <laughs> hey hey i'm 29 <laughs> i'm not that young oh okay you're small getting small baby yeah <laughs> he's a small baby until he turns 30 can we all yeah, agree then, on that yeah then you become an old till next year you can come join us at the adult <laughs> table when you have reached 30. Oh, yeah, the, uh, I'm cool with that because I can just sit over here on the couch and play video That's games. right. You can sit in the living room with your cousins until you're old enough. I just, I just can't get over what a curse sends uh, the like 33-year-old trying to play a 16-year-old playing a 12-year-old supposed to be nine. <laughs> like, that's... <laughs> oh, goodness. Um, yes. Like, there, there are so many good parts about that structure that could have been had they decided to... If they cut a bunch of the random chase scenes or all the times that Toto just decides to like F off and and run, which part of me isn't even sure that that was like stage dog stuff. And that was just like the dog got loose and we filmed. Um, But like, I would have rather actually had her come back and be like, hey, Aunt Emma, Aunt, Aunt Em, I'm, I don't want to go move to this other school and find a husband. I want to like do my thing with the kids I like working with. That would have been some closure, but like, I don't think that they, they probably just ran out of money. Uh, like there, there was so much money spent on this film. There's, there's, there's a few other things that like struck me as like really interesting differences. Like I know that like in the original Wizard of Oz, everybody was not running around in designer clothes. Whereas I felt like every single ensemble piece, every set piece thing was full of like, really big name designers for like late seventies stuff. And like to the point where in the credits of the movie, there's actually like at least a full screen's worth of scroll. There's just logos for like Ferragamo and like other high fashion brands. I blame this on Joel Schumacher. I don't have any proof, but I feel like he has to be involved. You don't have any proof that a black lead production wouldn't want people stepping out in the best clothes they could find. Yes, but but because I feel like that's a Diana Ross yeah, decision fair. right there, um, and, and, and yeah. I think that that might be the thing. But her outfit wasn't that good. It wasn't. 
I mean, I did appreciate that the shoes were silver. Her fro was tight. The fro was tight. Yeah, yeah, you're right. The shoes were cool, too. And the costume specifically, so there's two things about that that I think are interesting. From an adult lens, I rewatched the second hour of the movie um, today, and I was thinking about, as they get to the Emerald City, and they're, they're, there's those insane costume changes between the three different colors, then I was like, it, and the fact that the um, Eveline was like running a sweatshop and making clothes, I was like, oh, is this movie going to talk about like fashion and consumerism? Like, is that where they're like going to take this? Uh, they did it. But like those two scenes back to back, I was like, oh, the uh, the Wizard of Oz is asking Dorothy to kill Eveline so that he doesn't have competition on these clothes. Like is, is sort of where I thought they might try to go with that so it's interesting that they didn't but the one thing i wanted to i alluded to earlier but i wanted to ask so out of the three colors which of the songs did you like and which of the outfits did you like the best because i had some thoughts about the three choices they made no this is my answer to that question that's you no. can't do that you can't answer it that way <laughs> no i hated that whole sequence so much I was so in awe of, like, the set piece there. I did not care what people were wearing or what song was going on. I was just, like, looking at the entire set design and the choreography or the way they were getting people to move across the screen that I just didn't care about anything else. Yeah, I mean, I stereotypically enjoy the the gold, and I'm trying to see if I can find the tab I had uh, for it, but, like, that it just was had to be a ridiculous um uh, set piece. Quincy Jones is playing the piano during the gold scene. Like all there's all sorts of stuff there. And I think this is actually where the relationship between Quincy Jones and Michael Jackson starts is from getting together in this movie, mm -hmm. which makes it historic, um, uh, because we wouldn't have off the wall or thriller um or bad without that connection. And uh yeah, like I so I don't know. I think my answer has to be probably gold. But yeah, like oh also I realized that um I didn't throw up a spoiler talk warning because it's the Wizard of Oz and it didn't feel appropriate to even care about spoilers. Lord knows the story didn't care about a lot of things. So I, I feel you know, okay with my disrespect. But, you know, thinking back to Eveline's uh sweatshop with definitely, you know, a choice. There was some real good labor humor in there um, thrown in of everyone getting excited about the sweatshop thing. Um, Dorothy defeats Evelyn. She's sent by, by Richard Pryor's, uh, like the wizard of Oz, which is a sentence that I just came out of my mouth is she was sent to assassinate the, the wicked witch by Richard Pryor who explained that like, that was the only way that he was going to like help her get home. And she pulls the fire alarm in the sweatshop, which Water-based fire alarm and a sweatshop run by a witch seems like an oversight. Just saying. Like, that wasn't the, the brightest business decision. OSHA rules, right? Like, she may not have had a choice. But they weren't. They didn't have lunch break, so she was already skirting the rules pretty bad. The inspector doesn't check that, right? He checks to look to see if there's, like, a working fire suppression system, and she had that. Also, her throne was apparently a giant toilet. I don't understand. Yes. Yeah, like, I realized what was happening in slow motion. It was just like, is she getting flushed down her toilet <laughs> yes, yes that's what's happening also why once the workers got freed like the women were basically wearing bikinis but the men were wearing diapers what were they wearing a lot happened in that scene and i was struggling to understand exactly what was going on i think that i termed it uh, a, a, a mullet diaper or mullet thong because it was like business in the front and party in the back like the you know the the male sweatshop workers, the mass sweatshop workers were all cheeked up, um, just like the women. So pray for gender parity in Oz, is most I can say. The oppression of wearing clothes, even wearing clothes, you know, was a whole thing. And a bunch of them that look like monsters, like they 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 unzip the 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 costumes for the monster clothes, and then they're just very sweaty, uh, beautiful black dancers. And all the clothes that they threw on the floor just spontaneously catch fire? Symbolism. Uh, like, we, we did a symbolism. But that whole set piece was still, like, I, I still loved it. It was still, it went on, like, ten minutes too long. 
but it was like yeah you know there were ideas here uh, in terms of like all the different adaptations of things of like you know what is hell in a black oz a black hell in a black oz is a shitty factory or sweatshop job <laughs> you know more so than you know working in a weird toy factory or something getting chased down by motors by by like by gangs is probably more scary than dealing with flying monkeys you know like all that stuff kind of connects for me i think one of the interesting things since we mentioned symbolism i'm i want to shout out to mr foot my ap history teacher was one of the things i noticed it's just a bunch of the original like economic like symbolism pieces from the original like wizard of oz story it kind of threw me like uh dorothy's uh silver shoes definitely are one um i don't remember exactly what my teacher said but i still have the vivid memory of him in the middle of the class someone just casually mentioning the munchkins and then him just going oh the munchkins oh let me tell you about the munchkins uh it, and it was just this weird like uh nostalgia for like high school history with like a really awesome teacher that just kind of hit me in the middle of some of the scenes in these movies I just wanted to mention that real fast. It has nothing to do with what we were talking about, really, but I just wanted to shout out Mr. Foot. <laughs> I mean, shout out to history teachers everywhere, to be mm -hmm. honest. Unsung heroes. The, the the good ones are doing the Lord's work. There is, um, <laughs> um, sorry, I just remembered, I, I, I broke, cracked myself up thinking about Eveline, you know, saying, you know, I'm allergic to water. It makes me melt as like an actual line. Like, not, not you know, I'm melting, I'm melting, but, like, I'm allergic to water is mm, A+. Plus. That's great. Which just makes it even more hilarious that her throne was a toilet, presumably yeah, filled I, with water. You know, living dangerously, I guess. And so they go back to the Wiz, and, like, they find Richard Pryor, like, sleeping on a cot in the back room with this, like, I mean, in, in like, the Wizard of Oz's, you know, big masquerade performance that is normally there instead of it being a gigantic thing behind the curtain it's like a gigantic silver afro statue with glowing laser eyes it's glorious i feel like we've buried the lead a little bit like in the original wizard of oz the big reveal is that the wizard happens to be a, a scam artist right like he's just faked his way into what he is i think in this version because you already know going into it who the wizard is because you've seen the wizard of oz because you're a human being so it's not really a surprise for you the, so the reveal is instead of the wizard is Richard Pryor and that Richard Pryor, the wizard used to be a dog catcher before coming to Oz or sorry, tried to be a dog catcher. He ran to be dog catcher and failed. Failed and corrupt politician amazing. from Atlantic City. No, I'm thinking about Richard Pryor's joke about where he was talking with the dog in one of his like uh, stand up routines. I think it was one of his later ones. It was it was too, too perfect for the quality of this movie. It was just kind of amazing. I will say his actual whole confession is actually very heartbreaking. It's one of the more poignant like points of this film, along with Michael Jackson's representation of the scarecrow. It's very on point, but it just gets overshadowed by me thinking about this failed dog catcher from Atlantic City. Just amazing. Honestly, the movie might be worth watching just to get to that scene. It's so yeah. good. You know, and Dorothy's, you know, magnanimous, you know, oh, yeah, you know, everybody, you've already had what's had it within you the whole time. You know, Scarecrow, you've always had courage. Also, Michael Jackson's Scarecrow kept um, spitting out, like, random literature quotes. Inside of his stuffing was nothing but, like, random literature and, like, book quotes uh, for famous authors. And something that doubled me over laughing was like there's a torture sequence um before they kill Eveline that is really messed up they they saw scarecrow in half and michael jackson you know yells out it's okay dorothy i can't feel anything this just really messes up my filing system and they crushed the tin man like he was like uh you know an aluminum can and he goes, don't worry about it. You know, I'm just a hollow shell. Um, <laughs> and then, you know, I think they, they pick up the cowardly lion by the tail on like a little crane thing, which wasn't as like weird and affecting. But like, honestly, the, the Tin Man crush thing and the Scarecrow saw blade 
Um, it wasn't quite Who Killed Roger Rabbit. You know, you put him in the dip vibes, but it was like on that on that continuum. Sorry for everyone I've given nightmares, but I reminded them about the dip. Yeah, I didn't need to be reminded of that. This is an aside, but like the first time I saw that movie, I was way too young to have watched that movie. And there's so much of it that was just like terrifying. I was like, why are cartoons scary? Don't make your kids watch uh, Who Framed Roger Rabbit. It's a bad move. Or do, because I did. And it gave me a lot of character, I feel like. I felt that way about Shaft. <laughs> Say what now? How old were you when you saw Shaft? I had to have been like five. And I'm talking about the 90s Shaft. I went to see it with my parents in theaters. You went to the theater to see Shaft with your parents. Yeah. Wow. It is why I'm an interesting mm -hmm. person today. <laughs> mm -hmm. I mean, my viewing habits are pretty much unsupervised. And I had an older sister. So I've seen a lot of bad things at a very early age. But we didn't really go to the theater to see Shaft. So you've got me there. That's a special level. Oh, just wait till we get to talk about video games. Oh, man. That was an intentional decision. <laughs> age appropriate? <laughs> not so much <laughs> yeah but like thinking through those things and then you know like when, when she's giving her by their pep talks at the end before she goes back home Richard Pryor like shows up like like stands up with like the most heartbreaking terrifying like can you do something for me can you please help me that like actually hurt and she was just like nah you're gonna have to figure that out for yourself playboy like you know I'm going <laughs> everybody else did the work by saving me from <laughs> flying monkeys and all those other things. You haven't earned my benevolence. And she just leaves him there. Um, also, it's pretty messed up, too, that she, like, goes home, but doesn't even, like, contemplate the idea of, hey, you can come with me. Like, maybe that's the thing you could do. Nope. She is a strong, independent woman that don't need no man, especially not Richard Pryor, the failed dog catcher from Atlantic City. <laughs> Girl's got a day. She knows what she's about. The only thing he could have offered her was like uh, a hot air balloon ride, and I wouldn't trust him with that after the first one got him to Oz. Oh, no, yeah, like it's you know it it was just it was a really you know like it would have been a really bizarre letdown for the movie story to end this way, but the last song with Lena Horne as Glinda the Good Witch and um, and Dorothy singing um, "Home," which shot with her directly facing singing into the camera was powerful in like a bunch of it was it was powerful for me also made it really hard for me to ignore the 33 thing that's the reason why i'm harping on this because the last thing you see is like the 33-ness of diana ross in that um <laughs> in that movie close up in hd as it probably wasn't meant to be seen um but lena horn as uh, glenda the good witch was like fantastic for you know, such a small part of it that I felt like when I came out of it, I was like, I hope Lena Horne won an award for this and then had to go back and was like, this was three minutes out of a 215 minute piece. But it was so like on point that like it just said like good taste in my mouth as we like ended the movie. I, I think that would be fair if the actual end of the movie was an end of the movie. Like... <laughs> And wasn't just like a song to credits, because like I I was watching it and I legit thought that like I had skipped something, um, and I also I was watching it on a streaming platform and when the credit started like the thing shrunk or whatever and like ended and I was like wait like did it skip a scene like something was supposed to happen there right like that's not how that was supposed to work no it's just song to credits so. I think that's the part that sort of soured it for me at the end. I think they ran out of budget at that point. They're like, oh, well, wrap it up now. Like the tighter we can we can do this close up, the fewer props and um and text we have to have around, no grips, just you know, just a slow zoom and vibes is like how that came across. But you know, overall I, I think that, you know, there were still some good things about this movie. I am not going to be watching this anytime soon. But it was good to be reminded of, like, how joyful some of those songs were. And, like, even even the bad songs in this, like, blow anything, blow most of the stuff from, like, the traditional musical out the water in terms of 
like fun in musicality. And I just, you know, came away from it appreciating how like we can always make something sound good. Uh, we can always make something look fun, even if the plot is minimal or, you know, disjointed. We can find ways to make fun out of something. And as a cultural aspect, that felt relevant. Uh, what were all all of your closing thoughts on The Wiz? Before closing thoughts, I have one question that's for Lauren or Andre, because you might know this. So for movie watching history, was it not common for black people to go to the movies in the late 70s? Because like the fact that this movie bombed, but also like I know how black people go to movies now. Those two things don't make sense to me. Yeah, so there's it's a great question, actually, and it does get to a part of the history of the film we didn't really cover, which is the racism aspect, because you can't have something black and not have racism be a part of it somehow. So one, like there's a couple aspects of that. So I think Ryan mentioned like that this was a really expensive film. Originally, the studio would only give Quincy Jones like $500,000 to make this film. That's all they would spend on a black film, right? So he had to actually go to bat to get additional funding to do this um, on his own. But then also, once it was ready for release, part of the reason that it bombed was not just on its merits or relative lack thereof, uh, but the fact that white theater chains wouldn't actually run it because they were afraid that they would scare off the regular white audiences, right? At this point in movie history, you still have black movies are for black people. Those are basically like the black exploitation films that we've all seen before, and white films are for white people. And the idea that you could have a black-led film become something that white audiences would go to was just unheard of. So it was basically just cut out of a giant audience segment that would have made up the rest of its ticket sales. So black people went to see it, but only in black theaters if they had one near them. So you actually only had people that were in places that they had a black theater nearby who were able to even see it. So it actually never really got real wide distribution this was basically an indie film for all intents and purposes and it's the number of theaters it was actually able to to be at even when it made it to tv there was a whole to do about like will people watch this and is it going to scare away white audiences from tv broadcasts because at the time it just wasn't as normal i think that eventually got better this you know used to and actually no i didn't even get better this aired on regular tv broadcasts i think a couple of years and then it moved to bet so if you were a kid in the late 80s and 90s and you saw this movie on TV, you probably saw it on BET because that was the channel that aired it and most other channels wouldn't. Yeah, and I, I think that um, this movie was often used as like the excuse to not do budget black films post black exploitation. Yep. Um, and so, you know, but at the same time, there are a ton of careers where people point to their first performance you know in theater in as like the broadway performance of the whiz or in this movie version folks like uh felicia rashad or robin givens was in that um that uh that food scene in the beginning at on m's house like it's just a really interesting list of like black actors who point to this as a seminal moment yeah and it's kind of like it's interesting because you do have huge black stars in it right you have michael jackson was a fairly big star, although they didn't want him in the movie at first. They kind of had to be convinced to actually put him in the movie, and then they wanted him. It was going to be J.J. from Good Times, right? Yeah, it was going to be J.J. Walker. Whoa. Jimmy Walker was their first choice. Yeah. Because the, one of the executive producers thought that Michael was a, a Vegas act. The Jackson 5 were a Vegas act. They weren't serious performers that you would have in this kind of a major Hollywood film. So they actually had to like schedule a meeting to talk with Michael. And at, after that, they were like, yeah, no, he's our scarecrow. And he did an amazing job at it. Like his natural innocence exudes through his costume and it works, but that wasn't what they originally wanted either. Um, but he still had, you know, they had him, they still had, you know, lots of well-known stars and it was run by well-known producers, but not necessarily something that people wanted to fund in the same way. Part of me is actually really curious as whether we would feel the same way about the film if we watched the TV version, which I think was cut down by, like, a lot. <laughs> it might have been cut down by, like, a third to air on TV, and maybe that's why we all remember it being more focused than we uh, saw this mm -hmm. time. That's a good point. But yeah, there is a, like, 
the, this this movie is available on Peacock, um, the NBC streaming platform. It's also available for purchase on a few of the others. And I think that there is like a 30th anniversary Blu-ray that came out in like 2008, 2010. If you really need to see high definition peanut butter cup nose on Michael Jackson, that is there for you. Oh, so final thoughts. Um, you know, I'll cycle back around to where I was the beginning of this i like a lot of aspects of this movie i don't think it's a great movie i think it probably would be a good stage play and the soundtrack would probably be worth listening to if you haven't seen it and you got this far through this episode i would recommend you watch it like don't feel like you need to watch it and that be the thing you pay the most attention to but i think it's worth experiencing but i don't know that i'll personally be excited to watch it again yeah, for me, I feel like this movie had a lot of endearing parts and a lot of just great, marvelous pieces to it. But, you know, it's it's kind of just Wizard of Oz, but bigger and blacker. Um, So, like, you know, with that, it's just like, all right, you know, it, it, it's a movie that exists. Yeah, I would say part of what bothers me about this movie not having done well in theaters was because white theaters wouldn't play it. Uh, and so... That sort of like built-in racism kept it from potentially achieving greater box office gross. That said, this is not a good movie. It shouldn't have done well at the box office, but it shouldn't have done well on its own lack of merits uh, and not because people were afraid to watch a movie that was a black version of The Wizard of Oz. So I also think if you've gotten this far, like you've listened to it, you might as well just go ahead and watch it. You can fast forward through the scenes that you don't really care about, but you should at least experience the weirdness that was like to paraphrase like or to repeat the bigger blacker version of the wizard of oz also too real quick i recommend uh actually doing uh what james did and actually splitting it up into parts if you do want to watch the full thing and just like taking it like a half hour to or to an hour at a time that actually really does help with getting through the entire movie See, i would never come back to it so I think you should just fast forward through it like Andre did. Pick whatever model works better for you, but don't watch the whole thing in real time. When a song feels like it's gone on too long, you know, you're at the third third chord modulation, feel free to hit that fast forward until you see the dog running around and then you're probably good yeah. to go. And if you think you missed something, you didn't. It just doesn't make sense. Don't worry about it. Keep going. Okay. Um, well, you know, with that said, I, you know, thank you all for... Um, indulging me with um, this childhood classic and also honestly like you know still a cultural touchstone even though it's it's not it's not a good movie if there's anything that working on this podcast with y'all has taught me is that like you know things don't have to be good for them to be important for us (laughs) and so I could still recognize the the ways in which this was important and the things that it made possible and still go yeah this didn't really make sense but you know thank you all for listening to us on the Black Movie Podcast. You can catch us online at blackmoviepodcast.com. Please rate our podcast on iTunes. Give us five stars because those are the only ones that matter to the algorithm. Help us please our friendly algorithm. And you can feel free to tweet at us at BLK Movie Podcast on Twitter or reach out to us at Black Movie Podcast on Instagram. Take care and we'll see you all soon. Thank you for listening to the Black Movie Podcast. Our show is edited by Mike Knight. Our theme song is by Chris Negro Justice Brown. And our logo was created by Savannah Alexander. Even if you never heard of me, just know I murder beast. Leave all these kids with third degrees. Evidence is empirically laid out in front for you to see. I found the Trinity. Good people, we did memories. These are the only things I need.